cancel culture and the culture wars in general are obstructing the ability to produce a political project that addresses the material needs of poor and working class Americans in the current age of constricting capitalism. Professor Ben Burgess in his new book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, attempts to chart a way out of this morass by offering a critique of the contemporary left that illustrates the internal obstacles that make expanding its political reach difficult. All right. Uh, my name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. I am uh, joined, as always, by our producer, Forrest, and uh, now, as always, uh, by our YouTube uh, producer, editor, uh, Kelly Carey. So um, want to uh, want to cover a, uh, a couple things uh, when we get started here. Uh, so the, uh, the first is um, there's a new article out uh, by Slavoj Žižek. Uh, called The Difference Between Woke and A True Awakening. Uh, so I, I like this article for, uh, for many reasons. Uh, the, you know, not least uh, is the, uh, the first paragraph of, uh, of the article uh, where, uh, where he, or, you know, first, uh, first full paragraph. Uh, he says, uh, the usual uh, liberal conservative approach to so-called woke cancel cultures that is too radical, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et cetera. However, I think Ben Burgess is right in his claim that woke agents of cancel culture are quote canceling comedians while the world burns. So, didn't hate that. But what I actually really like about this article is the main line of argument as it goes on. Now it's Zizek, so there's some Lacanian psychoanalysis, and as always, I don't quite know what to make of that. Uh, and you know, there are a couple of claims you can quibble with here and there, but I think the main line of argument is exactly right and really dovetails with what the uh, the book says. I think the la you know the very end of the article um, you know sums this up uh, really nicely. Uh, so he you know he goes through a lot of different controversies and he talks about attempts to censor so-called critical race theory by a bunch of Republican state legislatures. And I think he makes exactly the right distinction here. He says while criticizing PC cancel culture, we should always bear in mind that we share their goals for feminism, against racism, etc., and that we criticize uh, their inefficiency in reaching those goals. I guess I should be doing a Zizek imitation, but I'm not going to do that. Um, with uh, advocates of the founding myths, uh, the story is a different one. By advocates of the founding myths, he means people who want to censor, you know, CRT, uh, you know, want to censor the teaching of so-called divisive concepts in universities. He says their goals are unacceptable, and we hope they will fail to reach them. And I think that's exactly the right distinction, you know, between, you know, cr critiquing the um, well-meaning but self-destructive uh, people on our, our side for being counterproductive uh, versus uh, implacably opposing uh, those advocates of the founding myths because their their goals are toxic. Uh, and of course, uh, one of uh, our favorite members of Congress uh, here at GTAA uh, got, uh, has been getting in trouble lately for exactly that, for, for threatening the founding myths, the, uh, the romantic mythicized mythicized, that's not a word, the uh, romanticized uh, bullshit, you know, about America and its role in the world and how it's, you know, supposedly different from other countries. Uh, Forrest, do you have the, uh, the, the clip of Ilhan? So this is the original thing. You oppose the court's investigation in both um, Palestine and in Afghanistan. 
I haven't seen any evidence in either cases that domestic courts can uh, both can and will prosecute alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity. And I would emphasize that in Israel and Palestine, uh, this includes crimes committed by both the Israeli security forces and Hamas. In Afghanistan, it includes crimes committed by the Af Afghan national government and the Taliban. So in both of these cases, if domestic courts can't or won't pursue justice, and we oppose the ICC, where do we think the victims of these supposed uh, crimes can go for justice? In, in both of these cases, if domestic courts can't or won't pursue justice, and we oppose the ICC, where do we think victims are supposed to go for justice? And what justice mechanisms do you support for them? Thank, thank you. Um, first, let me just say at the outset that um, it is impossible not to be profoundly moved by uh, not just the, uh, uh, the loss of life in the recent uh, violence and, and conflict, uh, but especially uh, the children whose whose lives were lost. And we 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 all have a you know a tendency to throw statistics and numbers out there, but uh, we were talking about um, boys and girls, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, as well as men and women. And uh, I think uh, none of us, from whatever from whatever perspective we we come, uh, can can lose sight of that. So that's one thing that's that's very important look i you know our views on um uh on the icc and its its jurisdiction we continue to believe that absent uh a security council uh referral or absent uh the uh request by the uh state itself uh that that's not appropriate i continue uh to believe that whether it is uh the united states or israel uh both of us uh, have the uh, have the means, Mr. Secretary? I, I do understand that point. I'm asking what mechanisms you think is, is available to them. I believe that we have, uh, whether it's the United States or Israel, we both have uh, the mechanisms to um, make, make sure that there is accountability uh, in uh, in in any situations where there are concerns about um, uh, the use of force uh, and uh, human rights. Uh, et cetera. I believe that both of our democracies have that uh, have that capacity, and we've demonstrated it, and uh, we'll need to continue to demonstrate it going forward. And in the case of Afghanistan? Uh, with regard to Afghanistan, if it's our uh, objection, as you know, was, was to the assertion of jurisdiction uh, over the United States in the absence of a Security Council uh, uh, referral. Uh, and uh, I believe that uh, we have uh, the uh, the means, if there are any uh, uh, cases to uh, to be brought to um, to adjudicate them and to uh, to find justice. Oh, the, the uh, echo, I think the echo is in the actual video itself. Um, it was very like the quality of it's actually bad enough that uh, Illinois like staff had to cut out that like cut out parts of the question because of um, how how bad the the connection was, which. I mean, I yeah. feel like maybe it was deliberate. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, so, uh, 
obviously, uh, what we want to get into is the uh, the four alarm freakout that's that's happened uh, since uh, she uh, she made those comments. But uh, it's also important to get the original context. You know, when she's you know when she's talking to uh, to Blinken and she's asking about you know victims of war crimes committed by all these different groups and you know where they can go for justice, uh, given that the United States wants to still wants to deny uh, you know the jurisdiction you know for the International Criminal Court. Uh, and he's completely evading that. And he's saying, well, you know, the U S and Israel are democracies. So, you know, they can go to us as if like Palestinian kids who are killed by the Israeli army, as if their parents are ever going to, uh, to get any kind of, of justice from Israeli courts or, you know, or the equivalent, you know, in Afghanistan with the, uh, with it, the it, actually, um, it comes from an actual state department memo, the original questioning, um, right here where he writes the ICC has no jurisdiction over this matter. Israel is not a party to the ICC and has not consented to the court's jurisdiction. And we have serious concerns about the ICC's attempts to exercise jurisdiction over Israeli personnel. The Palestinians do not qualify as a sovereign state and therefore are not qualified to obtain membership as a state, participate, participate as a state or delegate jurisdiction to the ICC. So that's, um, he, she, so her original line of questioning is based on that memo. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it's, and it is, it is ridiculous to look at the original context of this and see the, the like complete absurdity of pretending that with, without recognizing the jurisdiction of international criminal court, uh, that Palestinians or Afghans or, you know, people, uh, people in all sorts of countries, you know, might be occupied, you know, by the U S military are, are going to have any kind of redress at all. And of course, what people were upset about, uh, primarily was the fact that she, mentioned all of these different groups as people who could commit war crimes, the United States, Hamas, uh, Afghanistan, uh, the, uh, the Taliban. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, that's supposed to, uh, and the idea, I mean, I think we have a tweet from, uh, from Lauren Bobert, uh, Bobert, uh, however you say, however you say Lauren's name, uh, who, uh, who what's that? Who cares? Yeah, who cares? Fair enough. Uh, Lauren B. Uh, says, Ilhan Omar, uh, this is a Republican oh, congressional candidate here, Ilhan Omar, honorary member of Hamas, just compared the U.S. military with the Taliban. Sadly, it's not even a surprise anymore. We have terrorist sympathizers in Congress, and it's being normalized by the mainstream media. And this is a extreme example, but it's an extreme example of uh, of something that we, that we have, um, you know, that we've we've seen a lot of uh, that you can, if you, if you do a quick Twitter search for, you know, Ilhan Omar, you will see scads and scads and scads of this stuff. And I want to throw to uh, Kelly and the forest, you know, get their, get their thoughts on this in a second. But I, I just, uh, I think the thing that, that really needs to be emphasized about this is incredibly simple because what um, the sort of what uh, the, all of these ghouls are circling around Ilhan Omar for saying is something that's just obviously true that of, that of course um, all of these, all of these different groups and States, you know, can commit war crimes. They, they, they kill civilians, they commit atrocities. Um, and, you know, lots of people are upset, you know, that the, you know, the very idea of saying the U S or Israel in the same sentence uh, as, as these others, but, you know, I think the best response I've seen came from Elizabeth Brunig, which uh, said, you know, maybe if you don't want to be on a list of countries that commit war crimes, the solution is to stop committing war crimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
for whatever reason, I've had to watch a fair bit of Fox News um, in the past week. And, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty much just the one, the one thing that they want from, from everybody in the whole country. And, um, you know, it was boiled down in pretty well in one uh, Fox News segment. And they were talking about the, the tweet and, you know, this guy, I think, I, I think his name is Chris Hemmer. I don't know how often he's on Fox News, though. Um, and he was like, can't you just wave the American flag for once? And, you know, it had... <laughs> The issues were so complicated and like what he was basically saying is that she's anti-American and that no matter what, we should all react to anything by being pro-American and being pro-America and just never saying anything but, and that is Fox News' whole thing. I mean, that's their whole, that's the right's whole, like, don't think about it, just you know, answer one-sidedly, don't, don't think about it as their main thing. Um, and, you know, demonizing her for, you know, there were some other parts of that segment that, you know, basically were calling her an ingrate, like uh, ungrateful for living here because she was um, uh, an asylum seeker. And so they're more disgusted with her for having gotten opportunity in this country. And then now she's, she's, you know, she's throwing it all away, which is the exact opposite of what she's doing. She's doing, right. you know, she's doing a civic service. Um, she's actually doing what everyone on the left wish, wishes that everyone on the left would do. I mean, not everyone on the left, but everyone on the farther left yeah, yeah. which everyone on the left would do which is speak truth to power and i just you know there's not a lot of people on the left that have so little to lose because she certainly isn't backed by like big corporate money um and she certainly wasn't surprised by anybody who didn't come out and back her after her tweet like we might have been surprised by mm -hmm. it but she wasn't. Right. Um, and, you know. Uh, she, actually, she actually spent a bunch of time doing some uh, some pretty great trolling back at, and, and I don't yeah. know, she came ready with, she came ready with like videos to share that she thought were similar to her tweet. Like um, one of them was obviously the Trump, a uh, lot of killers, a lot of yeah. killers. And so I, I think the way that she's been able to utilize Twitter is, is you know, because she does expect, just as you're saying, like she does expect to have these, um, you know, to have the most ghoulish people, and and you know, even even just like the most, I guess, nationalistic people all come after her. So um, I, I think it's interesting that she's able to yeah. utilize and, the media in that way. I don't. I I would have thought, and you know, um, what I don't know. Maybe it's it's not just me maybe the, there there's a large large we here <laughs> we would have thought that there would be a larger segment of congress people um that would be you know surrounding her to you know really keep this this sentiment safe 
and like really make something out of it. And there, it's just, it's not that big, you know, it's like, it's the squad. But even when I think about the squad and I, and I, I love AOC, I'm not saying anything against her, but like, I don't know when, what was the whole thing with her, like calling AOC, like her, like grandma or something, whatever that was. It's like, yeah, she would, no, she was like palling around with, with, with Nancy Pelosi. And, um, it's just, you can't oh, do it's called the uh, Pelosi mama bear. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. That. See that, yeah. that's the thing. It's like, if you're going to do that, then you can't do this too, because this is in stark contrast to, to party politics. And, you know, you have to, you have to, if you're going to have this, you know, then you yeah. have to do it all the time. And, um, you know, J Jamal Bowman's doing it and, it, you know, T Talib's doing it and there's not enough people doing it. Yeah, well, definitely not. I mean, that, that group that you just listed off, I mean, that's like, uh, you know, that's like four people out of uh, 435 in, uh, in, in, in Congress. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, there was a... Um, you know, and and of course we we saw this exact thing uh, before two years ago because because uh, Ilhan uh, Omar came out and you know she she made a statement that was you know the gist of it was hey all that money that's spent on lobbying on behalf of Israel it's not wasted it has some effect on U.S. policy you know toward towards Israel which should be a pretty like anodyne yeah. thing right I mean like I think that. Uh, you know, all, all the money the Saudis spent on, you know, spend on lobbying Congress works too. Uh, but it was, it was read as, uh, as anti-Semitic. Uh, there were all sorts of denunciations of her. Uh, then um, that was actually as, the first. As there, are, as there are now. And I just, it's, it's so just, you know, reactive and, 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 and it's counterintuitive to me that, um, these people's constituents by and large re react that i mean maybe like in a, in a different in different age groups like in, in older age groups i suppose you need to be accountable to your constituents that feel that that this is anti-semitic but i don't i don't i mean i don't feel like there's going to be any progress um in any way if things like this are just, you know, blind support for Israel, which might just get worse, like yep. without Net Netanyahu, um, who knows? I mean, sounds like it, but who knows? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the good, I, I think there are some signs that at least on a popular level, I mean, that kind of like reflects of blind support for Israel, you know, I mean, obviously on an establishment level, that's still taken for granted. But I mean, I think at a popular level, I, I don't think that there's as much backlash as, as there would have been a few years ago. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm cautiously, you know, optimistic. I mean, I think that's why the right wing has been freaking out and trying to, you know, criminalize BDS and, uh, uh, and, and all of that, you know, because, because, because they, they do have some sense that, you know, public opinion is not with them in quite the way it used to be. But yeah, I think what you said before Kelly is exactly right. That like the, the gist of it is that you're not actually supposed to, uh, to, to think about it. Right. You know, you're, you're not supposed to think, oh, well, hold on. 
Uh, but is that is that not true? I mean, do do we not commit war yeah. crimes? Are th are there not you know people who you know whose whose homes are bombed, whose relatives are killed, you know who uh, who die of you know easily preventable diseases, you know because of sanctions? Uh, is that not true? Should should those people not have some kind of recourse? You're not supposed to ask any of those questions. You're just supposed to hear, oh, she said America in the same sentence as the bad countries. So uh, that I know. don't. I, I mean, is there are there people on the left that don't? I mean, this isn't a support the troops thing. I think it always goes to being like a support the troops thing. Yeah. Is that America is bad? Like America, we go around the world doing bad things. We just always go around. I mean, we make situations worse. We secretly do things that like aren't that secret i mean we don't care if they get found out um you know we do like cia ops to like control different countries we we do you know and we do good things you know that turn out bad <laughs> mostly you know we're not we're good and bad and um it goes into both categories it doesn't mean that it like i'm sitting here saying this and i support all troops that are overseas and that are that are here i i don't you know i i, I understand that they are individual lives american lives and that they believe in what they're doing and i don't you know i mean i'm in support of 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 them you know i'm also in support of all other lives and i yeah, you know, yeah all of, all of the it's complicated and, so i'm not yeah. i'm not i'm not against you know like military the u.s military troops that are abroad and everything like that it gets you know put into that category but um to say no, that but, yeah. the united states like goes only doing these like wonderful humanitarian missions i mean you won't even get vets to to say that i mean no, because they've they've seen, you know. Because they, they've seen and they know different. I mean, no way. I'm, you know, like it's. Most it's, of the most of the vets and like the people in the army that I know, um, that at least that, that get out of it, um, seem to become at least libertarian on foreign policy, like, which yeah. is, uh, you know, because because they, they see so much shit. But um, I don't. So that's that's kind of an interesting point that I always think about a lot, like. You know, like the most, a lot of the most disillusioned people with our foreign policy are people that have been on the ground and actually seen it in action. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, they might have, you know, some of the, you know, very, um, you know, cut and dried uh, values that still align with, you know, what you think of as the, the right, you know, like family and, um, you know, uh, religion and all of these things that actually, you know, exist on the left as well. Um, and so might consider themselves um, being more on the right. But yeah, I, that's yeah, my experience. They, they, with yeah, they generally know that they, they weren't, um, you know, that uh, they generally know that, uh, that they weren't in those other countries. Uh, you know, spreading freedom and democracy and good things and being welcomed, you know, with flowers by, by everybody there. Yeah. Uh, because, because how could, you know, how could they not, you know, they're, they're in that position, but the, the issue isn't about the individual working class people, you know, who go into the military. The issue is about what the, the military itself uh, does abroad. And you don't have to think that the United States is some sort of uniquely equal evil force. All you have to acknowledge is that uh, like, empires in general do horrible things and 
given the amount of power that it casts, given the amount of wars that it fights, you know, given the uh, given the amount of force it projects, to believe that the United States never you know, commits any crimes in other countries, never, never does anything that people would need some kind of legal redress for, for the ICC, then you'd have to think that this is just like this special magical country that, you know, just don't yeah. act like everybody else does. All right, guys. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we should, uh, we should switch gears uh, and, uh, and play the, uh, the preview speaking of a uh, country that's been the victim of a lot of what the American empire uh, does overseas. Uh, I interviewed Kurt uh, Hackbarth about uh, the election in Mexico that's dropping for patrons on Thursday. We have a little preview of it now where he talks about uh, the, what, uh, you know, AMLO and Mexican left have accomplished uh, in power. Just as a reminder, if you want the entire interview on Thursday, every other Thursday uh, patron episode, also the post games uh, at the end of the uh, the Monday episodes and a lot more, go to patreon.com slash Ben Burgess and, uh, and sign up there. All right. Thank you so much, Kelly and Forrest. Uh, so, so what, what are the things that, uh, that, uh, that Amlo and Marina, you know, were able to do, you know, between, you know, 2018 and this year that, you know, in terms of implementing positive reforms? Yeah, I think it's a pretty solid, um, you know, social democratic uh, center left platform in the sense of what are we looking at? We're looking at uh, scholarships for students, uh, stay in school uh, scholarships, a series of cash transfer programs to the poorer classes. Uh, apprenticeships for non-students, um, a universal pension for seniors, a 65 and over pension, which is actually uh, set to set to increase. Uh, AMLO has always had a very particular uh, focus on senior citizens, and he started the first ever pension uh, in Mexico City uh, as, as the mayor as of 2000. Um, small business help, um, uh, benefits for the disabled, unemployment insurance, these things didn't exist. Uh, in Mexico before, or sometimes there were kind of token programs that were kind of uh, usually uh, ways to co-op certain constituencies. And what he's done in a lot of these cases is raise these to the level of a constitutional right uh, in, in, in a bunch of these cases, for example, the scholarships and the pension and otherwise. So they're much, they would be much, much harder to roll back uh, in case that were the, you know, conservative majority to come in later. Uh, help for farmers, um, price supports, um, you know, a basic package of foodstuffs. AMLO's big push is to make Mexico sovereign again, both in energy and food. So help to farmers, which, you know, the countryside was devastated by, by NAFTA, which, you know, big uh, push for immigration, trying to get Mexico to be self-sufficient again instead of importing most of its food or much of its food uh, from the United States. Um, a big push in energy to try to make Mexico um, self-sufficient in energy again. We saw in February when the lights went out in Texas, the lights went out for 4 million people in, in, in Texas, as, in Mexico as well. So you've got a country that's an oil producing country that through years of bleeding and neoliberal uh, counter reforms, Mexico's become dependent on United States um, refining its oil and selling it back as gasoline. So that's been a big push, and that's gotten the most pushback on the international level. Um, minimum wage increase of 60%. It's still far too low, but it's a lot better than it was. Um, stable peso, uh, a public option for banking, which is what's called the banks of Bank of Wellbeing, which is an attempt to establish a public option in the face of a cartelized banking system where about six uh, international banks run the whole show here and bleed people dry, as in the States, with commissions, with, you know, fees, with, you know, overdraft charges, um, and anything you can imagine. Uh, marijuana legalization, 
Um, that was a Supreme Court mandate, but they did go ahead and, and, and pass that. And they'll also set to free federal prisoners uh, for nonviolent drug uh, offenses. Um, also, um, an amnesty law for, for women who, abort, who had abortions and were jailed, uh, indigenous prisoners uh, and such. Um, corporations getting corporations to pay taxes, pay back taxes that they weren't paying before. Um, and I think a big thing also is a ban on genetically modified corn and uh, glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, in Monsanto's Roundup. And that's also got a big pushback. Um, you know, Mexico is the, the civilization that gave corn to the world. And, you know, it's been prey to GMO corn coming in and, um, and, and this toxic chemical glyphosate, which even the United Nations said is probably a, is a, probably a cancer, um, causes cancer. Uh, that's been a big thing. Uh, warning labels on processed foods didn't exist here uh, before that. Mexico has a huge obesity problem. Um, second, I think, in the world, also as a result of processed foods flooding in uh, post-NAFTA. Uh, secret ballot for union elections, uh, a rolling back of outsourcing. So companies now can only do outsourcing for non-essential company functions and outsource companies are on a national registry. Um, so you can't just outsource your entire company and have a shell company. That's just going into effect now. And actually Mary Kay Cosmetics just uh, uh, filed an injunction against that so they can continue to uh, exploit their workers down here. So anybody who's watching and uses Mary Kay, maybe we could uh, think about boycotting them. Um, Public housing benefit has been reformed to help people who are underwater with mortgages, with, um, with, with public housing. Um, commissions on uh, pensions have been rolled back. Um, so that's, that's kind of in, in the social and the domestic uh, side. So I think it's a, I think it's, it's a defendable yeah, social that's, that's a, program. Right? Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that's a really impressive list <laughs> of, uh, mm -hmm. of achievements. I mean, some of, I mean, especially yeah, public banking having mm -hmm. uh, uh, put in the you know put in the protections uh, you know the um, you know pensions for seniors you know scholarships to income students making constitutional guarantees you know of, mm -hmm. of those right like, like those are I, I think in, in almost any context uh, those those would be really big you know advances uh, but you know but especially in you know in Mexico given the um, you know I mean. Given the starting point, you know those. those right. are, you know those are really remarkable achievements, and and I think that's probably important, you know, to, you know, to keep in mind because I think you know I think some you know American leftists maybe you know when they first hear mm -hmm. it's like okay it's a center left party it's a you know it, it's it's a uh, it's a big tent within the party and they've had to make you know coalitions deals you know uh, mm -hmm. outside of it you know forces that aren't so good and they have and you know even within it some people are. You know, liberals maybe not even you know uh and and they might you know hear all that and go okay so you know what's what is there to get excited about here but i mean mm -hmm. that that program you just rattled off for like five minutes i mean that that is uh i mean you're not gonna get um you know regard you know even if moreno you know was was very different kind of party i mean like you're not gonna be governing this the you know uh country uh, you know, bordering the uh, the United States and very much under its eye, you know, and, and have like you know, workers control the means of production or something. You know, that's 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 not going to be that's not going to be in the cards. But I mean, uh, that's uh, um, you know, that kind of I mean, look at the history of American intervention and in, you know, Latin America for of you course know, 
over over nothing, you know, over like extremely incremental, you know, reform. Over over much over much less than this in, in a lot of it. All right. So again, uh, if you want to see the uh, the rest of the uh, the conversation uh, with uh, with Nicholas, uh, then uh, that's going to drop for uh, for patrons on on Thursday. I was just really interesting. Got into uh, you know a lot of other you know important accomplishments of uh, of Morena, the Morena government, especially in terms of uh, foreign policy. Uh, and and also some of the like very real drawbacks and complications of of that situation. I mean, you know, exercising actual power is uh, is incredibly messy and complicated, and the bad parts could end up eating the good parts in you know ways that uh, that Kurt talked about in the interview. But it's still incredibly exciting. I mean, bottom line, uh, Morena has done what um, elsewhere in the NAFTA countries, you know, the NDP hasn't done what the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party has not done, and actually achieved state power and and accomplished, you know, incremental, but, you know, but some important reforms, you know, some some key parts of, uh, of its uh, of its agenda, and maintain power uh, in its first in its first major electoral test, which is exciting, also exciting. Uh, along similar lines uh, is the uh, the election in Peru, which we're about to be joined uh, by Nicholas Allen uh, to talk about it. He wrote an article for uh, for Jacobin uh, about that election. Uh, but to uh, to set that up, I think that we've got a, a clip uh, from Castillo's uh, victory speech. Without any personal interest, without any kind of interest. I'm here for Peru. And I want to say this once more. And I want to call for calm. And in the name of you, to recognize how brave you are. For a free Peru. The vote cannot be sold. The vote has to be defended. I want to extend my greetings of organizations from other countries, of teachers from other countries of Latin America, of the popular organizations of neighboring countries, of the president of Bolivia. Greetings for the Bolivian people, brothers, our brothers in Argentina, and the president of Nicaragua. Greetings for all of you. And I want to greet and I want to greet the political leaders that have recognized and have said it is good that the people is awakened and the people has to develop itself.
I will always we I will always be with the people and I will never take advantage of the democratic space to clean my debts to clean my crimes you cannot play with democracy All right, uh, now joined uh, by Nicholas Allen to uh, break all this down for us. Welcome, Nicholas. Hey, Ben, how's it going? How are you? I I am uh, I'm very good. I mean, this is this is cool to watch. I mean, it's it's it seems like maybe the uh, the pink tide's coming back in a little. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's 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 some kind of tide <laughs> coming back in. Uh, some people are calling it the red tide or the pink tide. Um, it, it's perhaps too early to, 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 to say the color or, or, or even if it's fully returned, but, uh, but signs are encouraging uh, in Peru and, and of course in Bolivia, which he, uh, Castillo mentions in, in his speech, also makes an overture to Argentina and other progressive governments you know, who, who uh, were quick to, you know, to reach out and recognize the legitimacy of, of his victory at a time, and we can get into this later, at a time when uh, there's uh, clear attempts being made by his <clears throat> opponent, uh, Keiko Fujimori, to taint that victory, that democratic victory. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that, that that victory speech like had all that, you know, internationalism in there, you know, it's talking about Bolivia and everything is is uh, is exciting because I know you mentioned this in your article in Jacobin, uh, that there was like quite a bit of the, the Fujimori campaign uh, was was about just just like red baiting and you know and 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 fear mongering like they had uh, uh, was it you know Leopoldo Lopez from uh, from Venezuela coming in to campaign for Fujimori. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I think all of the observers who were on the ground uh, it, it, during the election said that even in a country uh, like Peru, which is pretty pretty accustomed to this level of kind of McCarthyist red scare, the, the, this last election really. Uh, took took the cake, um, in part because Keiko Fujimori. This is a, you know part of her playbook, uh, but also it, it was, she was even more um, she was even more uh, I don't hysterical I guess in, in, with her use of this kind of uh, McCarthyist tactic because she really has no program whatsoever to offer, as you know is widely uh, reviled by. Um, you know, by 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 the general populace, she is the most uh, unpopular politician uh, in in Peru, uh, and so that was kind of the, her last uh, playbook. And it took her, you know, to, to dark places where she was, you know, re, you know re vindicating or, or um, you know, championing her her father's dictatorial legacy. This kind of like Bolsonaro esque uh, mm -hmm. mano duro, uh, you know, kind of law and order <clears throat> platform. Um, so. It was uh, uh, it just it makes it all the more remarkable that an avowed leftist in a society like Peru, uh, which you know is susceptible to these kinds of red scare campaigns, uh, <clears throat> was able to, to overcome that that threshold and 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 win by as we saw a very narrow margin, but not an atypical margin either for for Peruvian elections. So I know there's 
stuff to unpack, but yeah. 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 So, uh, so we, we should, we should talk about that, but also, I mean, why, you know, you get into in the article, all the reasons why Castillo is, is, is the, is the kind of candidate who it's, it's like shocking to see, uh, somebody like him be, become, uh, you know, president of, uh, of Peru, given given both his his personal background and uh, and and certainly his political background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the, the simple fact is that there's never been anyone like uh, Castillo, uh, i.e., someone uh, uh, from a left wing indigenous background. Um, the, the, that combination of factors is is atypical. I should add that there have actually been um, <clears throat> indigenous. Uh, there have been indigenous candidates or presidents in the past who are more of a neoliberal stripe. Um, mm-hmm. And also the, you know, the fact that he doesn't come from the center of Lima, you know, uh, Peru is a very centralized uh, country. And, um, and so the fact that he comes from, from the regions, you know, from the, the Andean region, and uh, we can include the Amazons also in that kind of marginalized parts of the country uh, is is uh, is truly uh, remarkable. I you know I can go into it's really I mean his biography is really in a way sort of reminiscent of, of Lula da Silva. It's something that really w- weighs heavily. Uh, in, yep, on the, uh, yeah, I could go into that a little bit. Um, so uh, Castillo comes from the the northern region of um, Cajamarca, which is a you know it's a, a region a mining region it's kind of like one of the so-called extract extractive frontiers um and uh he um his first kind of foray into politics is with these things called the the rondas uh, rondas campesinas which are basically like peasant patrols um self-organized um self-defense uh units uh, that exist existed and still exist all throughout uh Peru, basically in those areas where, where the state um, doesn't provide any kind of ser- services, not just you know, security services, but public services. Um, <clears throat> and these originated in the 70s, you know, generally to prevent things like cattle rustling and, and, and theft. And it morphed in the 80s into uh, defense units against the uh, the shining path or Sendero Luminoso. Um, uh, we might call it left-wing terrorist organization. I mean, this is uh, this is an organization that I think Eric Hobsbawm once said that it was the one organization that it was the one leftist formation that he wished never existed. <laughs> <laughs> to give our, our, our your listeners some idea of what we're dealing with. So, um, yeah, very, uh, very, very, uh, very murdery. Uh, you know, Mao yeah, kind of whole potian kind of yeah. <laughs> organization anyway so going back to the point so Castillo got a, he, he rose to prominence as a leader in these uh peasant self-defense groups which kind of catapulted him later into a role of prominence uh, as, as a trade union leader with, with the, the country's largest trade union which is the the teachers uh union and that kind of came to a head in 2017 when he led a, an enormous strike um, a teachers uh, union strike against a series of neoliberal measures that then uh, government, the government of uh, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, I think that might be an image of it right there. Um, yeah, that's cool. Um, he kind of rose prominence there by representing what was the more combative uh, wing of the, the strike, which was really um, refused to, to negotiate uh, the terms uh, of the strike with the, the then government. Um, and that pretty much is it. That's his background. And again, you know, 
it, it, it's unlike anything the left in Peru has ever seen. Not not, not to just speak of you know presidents in Peru. It's it's really something unique for the left. I, I would I would add uh, in Peru, which has seen a number of different kinds of uh, you know um, powerful uh, projects, such as in the seventies they had they had a, a kind of a left-wing nationalist military government under uh, Juan Velasco, uh, which was a kind of a top-down, um, again, kind of populist military uh, government that affected land reform, but didn't enjoy very, very, you know, it wasn't buttressed by social mobilization. Uh, it was, again, very top-down. And then the, the other example, which I mentioned, which is Sendero Luminoso, which was, a, right. just for your audience knowledge, it was a kind of a, a group of, urban intellectuals who went into the countryside with a kind of a, a Maoist playbook in their hand about how they were gonna kind of spur this insurrection, but basically ignored you know, all of, the, all of the, the rural realities that were found there. Now, uh, Castillo comes from this area and, is, and it represents you know, the, the social, uh, social and cultural reality of, of, you know, of that region. Um, uh, reasons which it should be added are, um, <clears throat> are are regularly see you know powerful social mobilization, um, self organization. So he really comes from uh, th this background, which is something I guess I'm, I'm being redundant, but you know Peru has never seen before. So. Yeah, yeah. So so in this uh, you talk about how like this this kind of regionalization of uh, of, of government in, in Peru that like as a country that's traditionally been ruled you know from from Lima. Uh, you know, very much, you know, that, that, that is, uh, that is a, very, a big, big deal uh, in, uh, in itself and the sort of anxiety, you know, about the, uh, the central government, you know, losing control of the, you know, like indigenous people, people out of these areas is like a longstanding uh, anxiety of the ruling elites. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a kind of, there's a superimposed kind of race, racial and class anxiety um, that, uh, that is clearly come to the fore. With, with his victory, um, it's funny. You know, people have been making lots of comparisons with Evo Morales, and this, it's it's very apropos in this case because uh, people are saying now about this new Castillo government things that were very similar to what happened when Evo uh, Morales won in, uh, his first uh, election in two thousand five. There's a famous Peruvian novelist, Mario Vargas Llosa, um, Pulitzer Prize Pulitzer Prize winning, a Nobel Prize winning novelist, who said in two thousand five that. <clears throat> Morales' victory was um, a victory for, uh, what, what do you call it, like ethnic separatism, mm -hmm. uh, racial, racial hatred, which we know wasn't the case. Um, and there's a similar thing in play now. I mean, I, I, you know, we could reach in the archive and find Vargas Llosa saying the exact same things now um, about, about Castillo. And, it, you know, it, it tears at the, you know, the, the, uh, the social historical reality of Peru, which is that, as you say, it's, it's uh, because of the country's uh, insertion into the global capitalist system in the 19th century, it was heavily centralized you know, in the in the capital of Lima, where there were you know exports in guano and other agricultural goods, and the and the the Andean regions and the Amazon were largely uh, ignored. They were largely kind of marginalized, looked upon as being you know kind of the the <clears throat> underdeveloped or kind of backwards part of the country. And, um, and uh, that remained the case for a long time with the one kind of complication that in the last 30 years in Peru, um, <clears throat> oh, there's our friend, yeah, 
Uh, Madagascar. Uh, what, what, what has happened in the last 30 years, and this begins with really the, the Alberto Fujimori government in the 1990s, which we can talk about, um, is that the, Peru has been riding the crest of a major um, commodities, a, a mineral primarily, commodities boom, um, <clears throat> which has shifted the, the, the center of gravity of the economy from this, uh, the coastal regions to the, the Andean regions, precisely where, uh, where Castillos come from. And what that's meant is, if you look at, this goes back to the elections, if you look at what that boom has meant, it's meant uh, great wealth for you know, the, the ruling class, a, a level of trickle down, um, you know, well, I can't call it wealth, but it's a level of trickle down. Um, uh, yeah, so, some, some material, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah it's, it's actually, it, I guess the point is that it's kind of aggravated this divide <clears throat> between the, the urban, you know, coast and, and, the, uh, and the regions. The Andean. Yeah, the, the article, there's this line I loved. They said uh, a detailed analysis of voting trends showed that uh, Castillo's support uh, tracks closest to those parts of Peru where the extractive industries have been booming at the same time as poverty has also skyrocketed, yeah. uh, as reflected in his slogan, uh, no more poor people in a rich country, which I love. I mean, that's so that's so simple, but that's so good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean so that's, yeah, that's exactly what's, what's happening now is... Um, He's come out with these very clear um, slogans similar to that. I think, I don't know if you have the video, but he, he, on the campaign trail, he walked around with this kind of cartoonishly large pencil, uh, which is, you know, his, his emblem or his icon, uh, which represents one, the fact that he is a school, he's a rural school teacher. Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And then, the, you know, it represents the other big, uh, you know, the big aspect of his victory, and was the center, centerpiece of his campaign, which is that he plans with this pencil here in the photo to uh, rewrite the Peruvian constitution, which, um, you know, we can go into this, but the Peruvian constitution is kind of a, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if I can, um, it might be a, a hyperbole, but it is probably the most neoliberal constitution uh, in, in, in the region imposed by Alberto Fujimori in 1992, which yeah, basically, you, you quoted like the Mike Davis line of, you know, about how uh, Peru is the birthplace of neoliberalism. Yeah. Neoliberal pop, uh, kind of a populism. It has, a, so what, what happens in 1992 um, is Alberto Fujimori calls this kind of mock constituent assembly to basically rubber stamp. Um, the big pencil is so cool to rubber stamp his, uh, his, his, uh, his constitution, which he already drafted. And what it basically does is it, it enshrines, private property uh, as the highest social good. There's nothing, it's in, you know, there's nothing that can trump that, be it, you know, the good of the, the nation. So basically it, it, it eliminates all uh, capital controls. It gives all mining concessions over to transnational mining corporations, deregulates all markets, um, you know, eliminates, uh, you know, all, all public service or privatizes most public services and along, et cetera. Um, so that, so again, when we try to get at the idea of the impact of Castillo's uh, <clears throat> his victory and his platform and how challenging it will be to, to actually implement it, we're talking about, you know, un undoing all that. So it's... Uh, yeah, yeah. So so I, I know uh, that, that you said, you know, his own... Um, 
you know, like he's he's, he's threading a, a, a needle in, in terms of an alliance, you know, between a couple of different parties and his own parties, right. you know, uh, platform, you know, economic platform is, is is much more radical, you know, uh, nationalizations. Right. Uh, but uh, but this this was a, a tight election that uh, that you know and and. Um, and there's there's nothing like a, a a sweeping you know mandate for all that. You said that it it could be, you know, it's plausibly the case that like he watered enough of that down that uh, to get at least the grudging support of you know anti Fujimori uh, moderates uh, who who probably aren't on board with even the stuff that. Uh, he does still support, but that stuff is at least like along the lines of, you know, no more poor people to rich country, at least uh, not nationalizing, but at least like taxing uh, the, uh, the the mining uh, industry to uh, to pay for some kind of meaningful social services. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. I mean, he, he did, um, you know, if you look at the tra- trajectory of Castillo from the first round of elections to the second, there was kind of, he did tack um, markedly, Towards a, towards a more moderate position by maybe you know the standards of some armchair left <laughs> group, right, 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 right. Uh, but <clears throat> but uh, um, and when I, when I say that I mean like, as you were saying you know his his party which there's some there's some amb- ambiguity about to what extent it is his party but we can leave that aside his party's platform is very kind of maximalist you know in the sense that it, it calls for a complete nationalization of all industries um, you know. Uh, a variety of other measures, but really the, the, that's the key one because this, we're talking about a country whose GDP depends ex- overwhelmingly you know, on these, on its uh, mineral reserves. Um, so he, he he walked that back a little bit um, to this this new idea of I think it's he wants seventy percent of all you know all profits from from mining activities, gas activities, lumber activities, extractive activities to stay in country and to go towards supporting a, a platform. Uh, for social, you know, expanded social spending on health, on on education, um, and um, <clears throat> and it's uh, you know I think it, it was on the one hand uh, you know attack towards the center to 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 get win over the as you said these the the fence sitting anti Fujimori um, <clears throat> moderates or center 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 right. Um, and you know the point. The, the point of fact is that the elections were very tight, in in large part because some of that anti Fujimori uh, block did b- break ultimately in favor of Fujimori. No, um, there, there was the, the, the again the, our, our friend. I don't know if you have him on hand, but that the Vargas shows so is kind of emblematic of that. And I'm, I mention it just because it goes to show that um, <clears throat> that even this you know quote unquote reformist platform is very radical in 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 the context of Peru so much yeah. so that you know, people who all of their lives were against Fujimori broke to uh, to the right you know to the far right so um yeah I, I, I want to talk about how how far right that is uh Forrest we have the uh uh the clip of, of Fujimori uh you know following the uh the, the Trump playbook and uh and and not conceding and uh and and doing uh kind of wrapping that up in red scare rhetoric. El Perú es un nuevo epicentro de confrontación. Confrontación entre el comunismo y una economía libre, entre el control de la prensa y la libertad de expresión. Y hoy que tengo la oportunidad de estar frente a la prensa internacional 
quiero también eh, dar mi mensaje al mundo de lo que significa esta batalla para nuestro país. Esta segunda vuelta no es entre, solamente entre Keiko Fujimori y Pedro Castillo, sino estamos enfrentando también al partido político, como además ellos se autodenominan, marxista-leninista Perú Libre. El destino ha querido que el fujimorismo que hace 30 años detuvo el avance de Sendero Luminoso, hoy represente a todos los peruanos en el intento de que Perú no se convierta en Venezuela. All right, so uh, in, in that clip, uh, for, for people who are listening to this later as a podcast, says that uh, Peru is the center of the struggle between communism and the free market, uh, that Fujimoriism, meaning her uh, dictatorial father, had halted uh, the advance of the shining path, and now these Marxist-Leninists are coming in and uh, trying to, uh, to reverse that and uh, to turn uh, Peru into Venezuela. Yeah. It's, it's it's the same the same old story. I mean, it's it, it's the same you know song they've been singing for for uh, for for so long now. Um, you know, and I, I think uh, this is just the beginning of this kind of uh, you know this kind of rabid anti-communist um, discourse, which again you know I, I, I it, it still has traction among certain parts. Uh, some sectors of Peruvian society, not just the far right, you know, there's, you know, there's, it, it, it speaks to how deeply, you know, traumatized Peruvian society was by the, you know, the so-called internal conflict between uh, the shining path and the Peruvian state. But I think it's also, you know, it, it's, you know, at this late stage, I think it's also going to be, the, you know, the tactic that the media, the right, the center right, Uh, will be will be using going forward as they basically develop a plan to uh, you know destabilize not by coup necessarily but th but by simply making uh, ungovernable uh, I don't know how to word this you know making it impossible for 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 Castillo to to govern through through different channels one you know I mentioned is the media you know playing to people's fears of, of uh, you know, kind of a Venezuelization of Of, uh, of Peru, and the other that we might want to talk about uh, yeah. is, is 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 in Congress, wh which is where um, you know that's kind of going to be uh, Castillo's Achilles' heels, where he doesn't have any anything close to a majority, uh, where, whereas the opposition to his government will, <clears throat> and is going to really hamstring his ability to to pursue the kinds of you know. By Peruvian standards, radical uh, a program that, that he wants to pursue and that he received a mandate to pursue. So, so the, you know, the, I think um, that this election, like this accusation of electoral fraud and everything, is not really about trying to steal. I mean, I'm sure she would love to steal the elections. Yeah, right. But, it's, like, it's, a, it's, it's like a, it's like Trump. You know, if somebody, if the, uh, if, if, yeah, if yeah. Some of those beautiful generals had uh, had offered to keep him in power, he would have loved it. But uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. that was never really in the cards. Yeah, I mean it's it's very it's remarkably similar, but um, but uh, you know it's uh it it's uh really about about kind of setting the the groundwork for for what for what is to come. Now this kind of you know you besmirch the the electoral results, uh, you kind of you kind of already from the get go put in question his legitimacy, um, and um, and it it, you know, it remains to be seen what um 
what Castillo's, uh, you know, r response is going to be. I think there's going to be a, a, a game of, uh, of chicken between between his government, which we still don't know who, who will comprise uh, his government, and uh, and these right wing, center right, right wing, far right forces, who, uh, you know, that they, they feel they feel the threat because the threat is real. Um, so we, we, that's a whole other chapter that we can go into too, but what that'll look yeah. like. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, what, uh, I mean, maybe just briefly, I mean, what, what does that look like? I mean, in, in terms of the, uh, if you have, um, I mean, somebody in the, in the chat, I think maybe in a sort of dark joke, you know, asked, like I uh, said, you know, uh, asked Nick when the uh, U.S. coup was coming. Uh, but uh, but I, I think even if that's not on the uh, on the table, I mean, surely I think that I would imagine that the sort of menu of options for for obstructing uh, the uh, the new the new government uh, does does still like go beyond what you know, what, what you get in, in other constitutional democratic systems. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, like, a, for example, a military coup is on the menu right now. I hope I'm proving. I hope I'm. You know, I hope that's the case. Ma mainly because there, there doesn't seem to be a, a mood among the populace right. for that to happen. You know, we we think of these military coups as being, you know, the sole work of, of military. Yeah, right. There has to be. There has to be a social support base for that, and it doesn't seem like there is right now because, you know, uh, Peru. All of this kind of euphoria of, of a left-wing victory is happening in the midst of a huge kind of uh, crisis of representation, complete political chaos, um, which you know this doesn't in any way, at least not immediately, resolve. Um, so really, the the, the tactic that <clears throat> that this, the you know the right wing in Congress is gonna is gonna pursue is to is to uh, you know to increase that to worsen that that crisis through congressional you know gridlock um basically you know making it impossible for uh for castillo to uh to govern and and he'll have um you know he'll, he'll have certain a certain margin to 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 do um to take measures but it's going to be a back and forth so i think the first thing he's going to need to do he's going to need to form uh, a government which at least in my opinion I wouldn't call it more 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 moderate or reformist, but it's going to have to have a stronger uh, technical or, or you know a stronger kind of expertise base. Um, and he's already drawn some of those figures from uh, the other left wing party, uh, which is uh, headed by Veronica Mendoza, which is which is from Lima, which is uh, you know it's full of university professors, economists, uh, neo Keynesian. Um, and he has, in fact, already taken his his what seems to be his economic uh, advisors, this fellow Pedro Frank, who um, <clears throat> who has really come out uh, against the 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 kind of media slander to 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 uh, throw a wet blanket over this idea that uh, that it's going to be you know wholesale nationalization of all industries, et cetera, et cetera. That's one thing. So he needs to he needs to put in place a, a you know a strong government one to rule you know, to, to rule efficiently, but also to, to kind of transmit to the general populace idea that, you know, that, that this country that is, you know, in the last year has seen a, you know, an 11% growth in, in poverty, a, you know, 10% decline in, in, in growth is going to, you know, they're going to steady the ship. That's going to be the, the, the first message that he needs to get. And he needs to get it out because, again, this goes back to what we were saying before, you know, the conflict. He needs to be able to have to give recourse 
so pop, popular support and popular mobilization if and when he has to go to bat with with uh, with the Congress, which will be um, he has a, a several different options playbooks um, to circumvent Congress if it, if it proves to be you know um, basically blockading any 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 uh, you know legislation. So um, and those you know he can. This will primarily all be around the, the the new constitution, which is kind of like the popular mandate that that he won on, um, you know, at least for some sectors. So uh, we can go into what those would look like. But anyways, yeah. I mean, if he is able to to get this this done, have like a constituent assembly, and you know, and, and write a new a, a new constitution. I mean, what would be like the general direction of the, uh, of, of, of the change? I mean, what's, what's the, like, like in other words, what's, um, you know, how is this, the sort of, I mean, you mentioned that the uh, Fujimori uh, imposed, uh, you know, constitution, you know, basically sanctifies, you know, uh, capitalist property rights as the supreme value. So, so I mean, what, what would, um, uh, like, like be beyond kind of, uh, you know, taking out that language, I, you know, like, like what, uh, you know, what would this, uh, this constitutional change look like if he was able to do it? It would be, it would be, you know, writing into law certain um, <clears throat> clauses about, you know, the, uh, the uh, national resources and, and all of the, you know, uh, extraction is an inalienable property of <clears throat> the, uh, you know, of Peru, of the people of Peru. It would probably, although this hasn't been discussed very much, it would probably have some <clears throat> plurinational component. So you know, some some measure to to um, evolve to to the to the regions, some level of uh, you know political autonomy, which has been you know undermined by Fujimori by the Fujimori um, government. And um, it would you know it, it would probably uh, you know it would probably include a number of clauses around the guarantee of. of Basic public services like education and uh, and uh, and health, uh, labor you know la labor regulations which are basically non-existent in Peru. Um, you know, again, that said aloud, it sounds kind of like a kind of a milquetoast this is social democratic platform. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, if you're. Uh... I mean, if the if the curve that your your gradient is is I don't know like Sweden in the seventies, you know, at the at yeah. the high high water mark of the uh, the welfare right. state, but if the uh, if the curve that you're graded on is uh, is Peru as as it as existed uh, as exists right now, uh, then then it's uh, then this is this is actually fairly ambitious uh, mm -hmm. and and which which you know this is something if 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 we have more time you know we could we could get into um, that. Uh, you know, I, I think also some people, maybe in the international left, you know, hear certain things about, you know, about, you know, Castillo's social views that, you know, that aren't great. Uh, and, but, you know, again, I think you always have to, to make these determinations based on the, the local context, what you're starting with and what the, uh, the realistic, uh, alternative is. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I mean, uh, uh you know, it's, it's not like the, uh, the opposition, you know, the, um, the alternative wasn't uh, some some candidate who you know who has like a well thumbed copy of you know a book by Judith Butler. Uh, the you know the alternative was you know Keiko Fujimori. Yeah, that's right. No, it's right. Since you kind of you, you did mention the, um, 
his uh, uh, Castillo's illiberalism, which has been criticized, you know, by sectors of the left. And he's been clear that you know he's very he's he has kind of a, a confessional mode where he's very he's very he's very transparent. He says that you know I don't believe in these things. I don't believe in same-sex marriage. I don't believe in, in abortion, etc. But he says that again. This goes back to your previous conversation. In a constituent assembly, those decisions are to be made by the Peruvian people. If there is a groundswell, you know, kind of demand for those things, then I will. So, you know, he's, he's deeply democratic in that sense, in terms of, you know, um, in terms of respecting the, uh, the, the will of the people. And, um, and, uh, and it, it's hard. Yeah. So, you know, we're kind of talking about, you know, the, 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 <clears throat> again, the armchair left that can, there are plenty of things that we can find at fault with, uh, Castillo. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he does come from a, a Christian uh, kind of evangelical adjacent background. He's not exactly evangelical. Um, but, uh, but again, it's, you have to remember that with, with the transformation of Peruvian society that took place under Fujimori, it was not just the authoritarian, uh, you know, kind of death squads and all of that stuff, which, which left deep wounds in which the Peruvian, Peruvian society largely rejects them. that much is, is kind of off the, off the table. But the, the, the neoliberalization, I guess you could say, of, of society was, was very deep. Um, you know, there, it was that through that neoliberalization, there was an emergent kind of extremely precarious middle class that grew up in the urban centers of, you know, Lima, which is all to say that there, there is a, a you know, there, there's a, um, He's going against uh, what might even be kind of a, a certain common sense uh, these days in, in Peru around, you know, just the, the way that uh, the economy should be run, the way what, what people's rights should be. So it's it's not something that he can just kind of impose by fiat. Like there has to be some <laughs> there has to be some work to, you know, to 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 bring the people along with him, and and that's you know. Yeah, and that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, thank you so much, Nicholas. Uh, everybody should check out your article on Jacobins. Is there anything else you want to plug before you go? Uh, no, just uh, you know, check out. Um, uh, I'm, I'm the managing editor of Jacobin America Latina. Check that, that one out too. It's it's almost as good as the original. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Appreciate that. Thanks, Nicholas. Yeah. All right. Bye bye. All right, uh, there's Nicholas Allen uh, wrote about the election uh, in uh, in Peru uh, for uh, for Jacobin. Uh, now uh, we are joined uh, in uh, just a moment uh, by uh, by Ryan Grimm, uh, and actually, uh, so uh, yeah, thank you, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so uh, on that, you know, that thing. You know, we was just talking about with uh, with you know with Nicholas the sort of uh, you know dark kind of global left joke about the election of Castillo in uh, in, in Peru. It's like, oh, okay, when's the U.S. coup uh, <laughs> coming? Uh, you uh, uh, and and connected that up with what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode with you know Ilhan Omar and the uh, and the and the backlash uh, against her. Uh, you you had um, well, actually, I, I, sh I should set this up. So uh, so you just finished a stint uh as for like a couple weeks few weeks uh yeah. yeah like i i have for the last year and a half or so been like crystal balls fill in whenever she would go on a vacation 
um, for a week or for a couple couple days here. Uh, and so she left. I think they they knew that she was leaving, but I mm -hmm. think that up until the very end, they were they were so they they knew that she had, she and Sagar said they were leaving. But mm -hmm. I think that you know they had had contract um, run-ins before and had resolved them. And so I think that right up until the end, they thought that uh, Crystal and Sagar would sign another contract and would stay. And so as a result of that, they're like, oh, <laughs> we don't have hosts. Right. Uh, so yeah, so they asked Emily and me if we could uh, fill in for a couple weeks or so. And so I ended up doing two weeks. Yeah, so so during those two weeks, there's this clip uh, that got a lot of play from uh, your, your discussion with Emily about all of the uh, backlash against uh, Ilhan Omar for, uh, for, for putting the United States, you know, for mentioning the United States in the same breath as, as other, you know, governments and organizations that, you know, that sometimes commit war crimes, uh, thus suggesting that the, the United States doesn't have an immaculate uh, record in the world. So let's, let's just watch, uh, let's just watch this clip. Of, uh, but on the other side, on the, the balance, um, you know, I, I think the United States has done incredible good around the world, continues to do incredible good around the world in a way that could never and should never be compared with the Taliban or Hamas. I would agree in this sense that when it comes to the amount of pain and suffering that the U.S. has produced around the world, the Taliban, Hamas and Israel are pikers <laughs> compared to what the U.S. has been able to accomplish just in, say, Argentina or just in Indonesia or just in Vietnam or just in Congo uh, or just pick, you throw a dart uh, anywhere at the at the global map and you can probably find you know at some point throughout the 20th century the US in intervening to undermine you know a, a, some type of social democratic effort and backing the most vicious right uh, right wing elements and the irony of them calling this anti-semitism when the U.S. very consciously and explicitly out of World War II allied itself with former Nazis, helped Nazis escape justice, you know, uh, was, was complicit in what was called the rat line, you know, the, the, with getting Nazis um, out, out of Germany and, and into these death squads that were run by the United States and, and deployed in an anti-communist fashion against the Soviet Union and against leftist elements in, in South America. But who so, ended the Holocaust? I mean, what country? The Soviet Union, actually. <laughs> okay, but... I mean, the, the Soviet Union did that. No, the, I mean, we, the we, Soviet Union... We walked Union... in after, they, after, this, after the Russians had suffered, what, 20-plus million uh, casualties and, and marched into Germany. Sure, but if, without the United States' intervention, a heck of a lot more people would have died in that atrocity. For, yes, and I'm, I'm glad the Soviet Union and the United States allied to beat Nazi Germany. But the Nazi Germany, the, the Nazis themselves then allied with the United States to go after the Soviet Union and to go after communist and social democratic elements in South America. That's that, that's an actual part of the history. But, right, but again, there's lives being saved in that process, a lot of lives being saved in that process, and a lot of Americans putting their lives on the line and dying to save those lives. Sure, but many, many, many fewer than uh, Soviet lives died to, to take on the Nazis. But that doesn't change the fact that the United States intervened and risked lots and lots of lives uh, compared to what it may have been complicit in or what it may have been lives it may have costed on the other side of that. I think, again, 
the the balance there is clearly on the side of good in a way that you can't apply to the Taliban or Hamas. Or Hamas. I would much rather have the uh, I, I would take the establishment government of the United States over the governing forces and the establishment of the Taliban any day. I'm glad we're in the American Empire, not the Taliban wait, Empire. Wait, wait till you hear who funded the Taliban at the very beginning. Yeah, I, I mean that 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 is kind of remarkable. I mean, it seems like that goes right to the heart of the the controversy over the Ilhan Omar comments. Like, are like is the United States a magical, immaculate country that you know that that is incapable of of wrongdoing, or at the very least, we have some kind of cosmic guarantee that the wrongdoing is always outweighed, uh, or or should we think about uh, you know historical truths that might really undermine that? Yeah, and and her comment was. Uh, as always with her comments, completely twisted. Like what she actually said was way, it was even way more banal than that. What she, what she said was that any country that commits an atrocity, you know, ought, ought to have some sort of accountability because it was in the context of her, her questioning uh, Tony Blinken about the international criminal court. And so she's saying, you know, basically she's saying like, if, if it's Israel, if it's Hamas, if it's the Taliban, if it's the United States, you know, if you commit an atrocity, you ought to be you ought to be held accountable somehow, which is, I mean, I, you, you, I guess you could be a completely, um, you know, Kool-Aid drinking. Right. Like it's like to get to a place where where that's just not common sense and that's just not. Well, of course, yes, you it's like you commit a crime, then, you know, there, there should be some accountability for that crime. Like that's that's the most like uncontroversial thing that anybody can say, like in the beginning of that clip not that clip, but being in that segment, yeah. we were, we were talking about the idea of, of balance. Um, Cause she's conceded off the bat that yes. Okay. There has been some misery and suffering that has been caused by the United States, but that has to be weighed against all of the good that the United States has done. And I pointed out that the United States is the only one that gets that. Right. Like, okay, let's do that for the Taliban. Let's do that for Hamas. Let's do that for the Soviet Union. They're all humans who have, you know, good and bad. Yeah, now let, all... let, we can weigh it and we can come to conclusions, but you're not even allowed to weigh the question on anybody but the, but the United States. Yeah, and, and in the original exchange between Ilhan Omar and, and, uh, and Secretary Blinken, uh, like the, the question wasn't even... Um, has the United States, you know, done more, you know, evil than uh, than than good in, in other countries? That that wasn't the issue at all. The issue was, uh, does the United States sometimes victim victimize people in law breaking ways? If so, what should the recourse be for the victims of that? Right, and and she she was also asking in the context of Palestinians uh, and Israel, and and you know, his answer there was. You know, both the United States and Israel have courts that are, you know, entirely effective, which is, come on, like Palestinians, for the most part, do not actually have legal access to the Israeli criminal court system. Like that's one, one of the main yeah. reasons people, I mean, there are many reasons people call it an apartheid system, but having separate legal systems where Palestinians are shunted into a military court system and uh, is, Israelis, uh, you know, some and some uh, Israeli Arabs are shunted into a civilian court court system. That's two, that's two different systems, and so and Blinken knows that. Yeah, and, and and of course we all know about the many examples of 
Afghan farmers uh, who've had hands blown off uh, by uh, U.S. bombs who've successfully, you know, had redress of the American court system. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the what you get is is like the same type of corporate arbitration system, um, you know, that that like Disney has set up. So if you lose an arm you know, at an amusement park, you know, you're, you've agreed to some sort of arbitration and, and how much of your arm did you lose? Here's what you get. I'm using Disney as uh, an apocryphal example, not <laughs> nothing more than that. Um, and so you're right in, in Afghanistan, if you are the victim of some type of drone strike and you can, and you can demonstrate through some um, arbitration over there, uh, you know, that this happened, then there's a set amount that the U S will, will cut you a check for, and that's it. Like, so that, like there, there is some sort of system, which is, uh, which is kind of almost, uh, which is chilling in its own, in its own right. right. You know, that there's that, that we have it down to a science that, oh, okay, this, this drone strike killed, um, you know, 11 people that we are, we can't remotely pretend to call insurgents. Uh, that will cost us $2,000 a piece. Um, you know, let's get the checks yeah, out. And it's certainly not the case that any sort of military, like, yeah, you, you get these payouts, but I mean, no military decision. Right, that's not be- justice. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's not, that's not like, that's not a court system where you can actually like try to redress a grievance. Yeah. I mean, no, but, nobody, yeah. I mean, the whole point of not recognizing ICC jurisdiction uh, is, is so American generals, you know, are, are never going to, uh, to end up in front of, you know, in front of a court facing actual consequences. Right, because then that would crimp their speaking fees after their military tour because they'd have to worry about what countries they were traveling to. Yeah, Can't right. That. Right, exactly. Um, so uh, I, I wanted to, uh, to to switch gears for just a minute. I know you you have a, a very limited amount of time tonight because uh, of because uh, of you know actual journalism, uh, you know, which uh, which you know. I'll, I'll come back on and talk about that story when when it's up. Yeah, please do. Uh, that's yeah. You you mentioned what that what that was to me, and I, I definitely I definitely want to talk about that. You know when it's uh, you know when it's done. Uh, but uh, but bef- you know but before did just want to you know to shift to uh, domestic American politics for a minute because during that that stint on uh, on the rising, uh, you uh, you were in the course of of talking about what was going on on the Diane Morales campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you revealed something I found pretty remarkable uh, about uh, about what uh, what happened or what almost happened uh, last year in uh, in Iowa. Forrest, uh, do we have the uh, do we have the clip? I just want to watch this and ask you about it before you go. The story I'm about to tell you hasn't been reported before. Heading into the 2020 Iowa caucuses, the Sanders campaign hired scores of new canvassers to try to drag out as many voters as they could to the caucuses. In a low turnout affair like that, just a few people can tip a precinct in your direction. Some of the staff started complaining about the hours, some complained about the pay, and some complained about the hierarchical nature of the campaign. They wanted a bottom-up revolution. They didn't want to be told by campaign headquarters how to do their jobs. And most importantly, they wanted days off in January, just weeks before the caucus. And so they started organizing, not organizing voters to come to the caucus, but organizing among themselves to get time off and to redress those other grievances. Several open letters were written, but not published. Staff proposed a work stoppage and suggested they stop entering data into the campaign system, which would have crippled the operation. This was their moment of, quote, maximum leverage, they argued. 
Fortunately for the Sanders campaign, they already had a union. It had been formed early in the campaign, so there was a process set up to handle these disputes. A bargaining unit call was scheduled for a week before the caucus to hash out their strategy. The state's regional field directors were also part of the union, and so they knew about the brewing uprising. They got organized too, and came to the call prepared with all of the arguments against a work stoppage and against a public statement denouncing the campaign. A vote was held, and a majority sided with backing down and not making the fight public. A week later, in a scandal-plagued caucus, Sanders won slightly more votes than Buttigieg, but Pete Buttigieg was deemed to have won slightly more delegates. Had a few more people shown up in a few more precincts, even with all the shenanigans, Sanders would have won both the popular vote and the delegate race. Yeah, I mean, so so in the, uh, just just to try to tie this together a little bit and, and sort of underscore why this, this is so um, remarkable and maybe worrying, uh, you know, we we're, we we're talking earlier in the episode about, you know, these, these electoral successes for, for the left in places like, you know, Mexico and, and Peru and, and the many, many, you know, messy compromises and trade-offs, you know, involved in, in those elections uh, and, and, in, you know, holding state power. And certainly, you know, I, I don't want to make, light of this um campaign workers have bills to pay like everybody else uh they certainly deserve protection against abusive bosses no doubt about all of that but in the 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 calculus of like the sexual you know the kind of immediate sectional interests of like you know 30 workers in iowa versus what it could have meant for the entire working class if bernie sanders uh had become president uh you know that there's something very wrong with this picture Right. And what the what the workers will say is that that's what every boss says, you know, that, that this is the time, you know, look, you know, it's just it's more important for us to hit hit, hit our quarterly numbers or for us to do, the, you know, what, whatever, whatever the objective of the corporation or the organization is, that that's more important than your rights right now. And so the regional field directors actually were said like that after the call, they're like, we felt like uh, managers. We felt like bosses. We felt like we were, we were, we felt like we were doing like boss talking points, anti-union talking points, because you know they're part of the union, but they were, but they were making the exact argument that you're making. They were like, guys, we are a week away from Iowa, like the world is depending on us to win this caucus. We we blow this. Bernie Sanders campaign is done. We win this. Biden is sinking. Buddha judge, we're not worried about him. Warren is sinking. Like the the ring is within our grasp. We're ahead in New Hampshire. We're organized in Nevada. And with a head of steam going into Super Tuesday, we can win this nomination. Like that's the case they're making. And that and that's more important than you getting a day off in January. Yeah, like, I mean, we're probably like, not gonna get days off in January in January, like a couple of weeks, you know, before before the caucus with the you know, especially with the size of staff that the Bernie Sanders campaign is is able to uh, uh, is able to offer, and and I mean, I I guess I think if if the left is going to be serious about about power, I mean, like these are the kinds of trade offs have to be prepared to uh, uh, you know to think about, and and I, I did just want to say you know so so this this isn't too um, you know, none of this sounds too anti-campaign worker that uh, you, you did also mention in a different part of the segment, you know, that, that we didn't play 
a a reasonable i think solution to to try to to square the circle between the legitimate needs of campaign workers and the abject insanity of saying that we we could have had like a work stoppage in the Bernie Sanders yeah. campaign, you know, weeks before the, uh, the Iowa caucus, which would just ground everything to uh, to to a halt, and and totally foreclosed any chance of uh, of him becoming president, uh, which is something that would be a form of organization for campaign workers that would be more analogous to like the Screen Actors Guild. Yeah. So if you think about. It, like if if you think about a parallel effort, like you wouldn't you wouldn't survive long if you if as actors and as as like I don't I don't know the film industry well, but the grips and the camera people and the you know if they were all organizing every single movie set, right? You no, know, and then like you, you know it's a week before your climactic scene where you've got to film it at like sunset you know, and you flew everybody out and you're like, this is our moment of maximum leverage. You know, we're doing a work stoppage right now. Yeah. That, that probably is your moment of maximum leverage right there. But then they shut the film down and like, Oh gee, you know, it, it's like to leverage to do what, like right. if you destroy the thing that you're organizing, like the Morales campaign said that they had the, the maximum leverage, you know, cause they were four or five weeks out from the campaign. But they didn't. That was false. Like their their work stoppage ended the campaign. So right. you which, don't, which you, in the Morales case might be no great loss. Which is uh, totally fine. Yeah, <laughs> you, did, you did us all a favor. You know, Morales um, kind of sucks, but uh, but they but uh, if if the Morales campaign had been what you know presumably people who volunteer you know who went to work uh, you know for mm-hmm. for Morales uh, thought that it was that it, it was actually the best vehicle for achieving these these desperately needed you know reforms in New York uh, then uh, this this would have the effect of uh, of blowing it up and and some of this right. like like again I couldn't care less about what happens to uh, to Morales but uh, but like there's something very strange about some of this like if you look at like there's a point where uh, Morales staffers were sharing around this letter from a 15 year old uh, volunteer uh, who was who was saying that like you know the shifts they were asking her to volunteer for ended at eight which is too late for a school night and okay fair enough but like you know but then she could have just not done that and then uh and it was, it was, also, it was comparing it to to child labor and at the end of the letter it says that because of these abuses uh morales becoming mayor would have uh, would have been nothing would have uh, been nothing less than violence uh against marginalized people and you know some kind of sense of perspective has been just hopelessly lost here yes also so my oldest daughter's 10 and we just got back from her uh softball game which ended at like eight oh five for a bunch of for a bunch of uh, like nine, ten, and eleven year olds. Right. So if you know, and they yeah. weren't getting they weren't getting paid for that either. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. There's there's school tomorrow. Well, I mean, actually, technically, there is not school tomorrow because um, today was the last day of school. But these games have been ending eight o'clock or later for all season long, and right. they, they managed to you know take a shower and go to bed. That's why I'm a little late. Um, yeah getting here and why I'm going to be up late uh, after this, finishing the story. Um, but yeah, and you know, I ag- agree with you. Um, we're not, this is not uh, trash talking campaign workers. Yeah. It's, it's hard work. And so, so the idea would be that if, if you can get to a place where you have some type of uniform uh, 
acceptable standards, you know, set up so that, you know, th these are the kinds of reporting channels you ought to have for harassment and abuse. These are the, the wages and it can be regional and they can be even, you could even set them up by time of the campaign because, you know, a, a cash strapped campaign at, that's just getting started and doesn't have small donors or big donors can't, you know, can't pay the same as a, as a campaign that's just raised $40 million in the quarter. So maybe you could, there, but there's gotta be some way that you can bring some uniformity to it mm -hmm. so that, so that this, and also on the Sanders campaign, if you talk to the, the leadership there, they were saved by the fact that they had a union right. at the end, because that created a process for them to work through. But the first several months they were, they were spending, the leadership team was spending it an enormous amount of time at the bargaining table while all the other campaigns are are building their schedule are working with constituencies are, are are hashing out what their strategy and their position is and so like campaign work at the senior level is extremely exhausting too you know you're, these are people who are putting in morning to, to night and they're doing that for a reason because there's two there's more work to be done than can be done and if you're taking half your day in, at the bargaining table, right. putting together this CBA, um, that that takes away. And Bernie did have a slow start, and there are definitely some people in the campaign that think that partly the distraction of of spending so much time bargaining was part of that. So that that would be the other advantage for campaigns of having something uniform that you right. could that you could just adopt. And then once you've you know gone through this, you get your what do they call it when you get a card for the Screen Actors Guild? Yeah, you, know, right. you, you get that card once you've had a role in a play. You get a card. You know, you're now a card-carrying member of this guild, and that's and that's probably good for you next time you try to get a job on a campaign. Um, just like as an actor, if you have that card, that card, right? Yeah, it's it's good for you. And I and I but I also think in general people need to make the calculation that you're talking about. Where on the nuclear level? Are, are the are the grievances that I have and are they more important than the than the needs of the people that we're that we're ostensibly campaigning on behalf of because the campaign isn't for the candidate and the campaign is not for the campaign staff the campaign is for the people that you're representing and so if you really do believe that you're there to to empower and, and make the lives better of millions of people you have to now, if you believe that the candidate that you're working for is actually going to do violence, right, okay, right. then 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 yeah, don't don't like that person. Um, but yeah, then, then it's, then it's maybe okay. You know, it's it's a public service to blow up the campaign, right? But if you yeah. if you believe that it's actually important, not so much. Well, uh, Ryan, I need to, I know you need to. Uh, to get back to uh, to finish writing that uh, expose on uh, your your child's softball team uh, committing right. child labor, uh, uh, we'll uh, we'll definitely not what it's about. Uh, this 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 is actually uh, this is actually uh, pretty important. So I uh, will uh, absolutely uh, should come back to uh, to talk about it uh, when it's Looking out. Forward and, to it. uh, and yeah, thank you so much. Excellent. Have a great night. All right. Thanks, Ryan. All right, so uh, this is uh, you know we're, we're at uh, you know we're at nine thirty five, which is normally a little after we would go to the post game. But there is one last thing that I want to do uh, before we go to the post game, so I've got that timed. I'm actually about to post that for uh, for patrons, uh, but uh, but I have that time to start at uh, at nine forty five uh, because uh, 
you know, cause there is, uh, there is one thing that, uh, that I really wanted to, uh, to talk about, uh, before we finished the episode tonight, uh, which that, uh, that has to, uh, has to do, um, with our uh, friend and comrade, uh, Anna Kasparian, uh, obviously of the, uh, the Young Turks, but also the, uh, the co-host of, uh, Jacobin's, uh, weekend show, uh, with Nando Vila, uh, before that, the coast, you know, originally the host, co-host of the, uh, weekend show with the, uh, the late Michael Brooks, uh, you know, who, who she credits with having really brought her around to socialist politics after having come from a much more, you know, normie left progressive, you know, kind of, uh, kind of background, uh, and uh, and recently, I've I've seen her, uh, you know, embroiled in uh, in some online uh, controversy uh, with other figures in uh, in left media, and uh, I, I I didn't ostensible, I didn't want to... ostensible left media. I think yeah. for a better term for the I mean you know not not so much Katie who I think is genuinely a good progressive. Katie is good people, but they have yeah. a, but there are. Uh, but certainly there are people who are journalists who are involved in this controversy who, you know, there, there's some, there's some red flags. there, are not the good socialist kind of red flags. Uh, there's, there's some stuff that seems a little sketchy to me uh, that said, uh, you know, I, I haven't, uh, you know, waded uh, too, too deep uh, into all of this, but one thing that, that really, that really started to bother me the more that I saw of this, of this controversy and this back and forth uh, between Anna and, you know, uh, journalists uh, at the gray zone is, is this persistent thing uh, that every single time one of these people wants to go after Anna, uh, they always bring up uh, this, uh, this interview uh, that, uh, that she did uh, years ago with Madeleine Albright. Uh, oftentimes, uh, even though some of these people are journalists, uh, so, so they should be better at research than this, uh, they'll, they'll say, oh, she was, she was flown to this like NATO conference, you know, with suggesting that she took, uh, she took money from, from NATO. Uh, it was not a NATO conference. Uh, while she was there, she also interviewed people like Joseph Stiglitz. Uh, and uh, it, it was, uh, it was a much more general conference. Uh, and, uh, and uh, her airfare and all that was paid by YouTube, which you know, which which had a bunch of prominent content creators, various political backgrounds go to uh, to cover it. And uh, and while doing it, you know, she didn't have planned interviews, but you know, she managed to like, kind of snag people and get them to can I ask you questions uh, for uh, for for ten minutes. Uh, she uh, she said uh, when you know the time, not the last time she was on the channel, which was for the discussion about uh, The Shining uh, back in April, but the last time she was on uh, the main show. Uh, you know, she said that part of her advantage when uh, when she gets, um, uh, you know, when uh, when she does things like this is that oftentimes um, various prominent figures at these conferences uh, see this, uh, you know, young woman. Uh, they don't necessarily take it that seriously. It's not like these people watch the Young Turks. They don't know who she is. Uh, and so she she can get in there and, and, and do some uh, some interesting interviews. Uh, if, and, if they did watch the Young Turks, they probably. I mean, I don't think Madeline Albright would be would be, you know. Yeah, I don't think Madeline Albright would agree to the interview if, if she watched the Young Turks. Uh, and the way that it's persistently brought up, uh, either if people play a clip, uh, they'll play the clip at the very beginning when Anna says something like, "Oh, I'm I'm honored that you know you're you're doing this or whatever," the kind of thing that you say, you know, to somebody to put them at ease at the beginning of an interview, yeah. uh, or and they certainly don't play anything from later in the interview. 
And this bothered, this bothered me because I've seen this come up so much. This is part of the playbook now that whenever Aaron Mate, whatever, you know, whenever anybody, uh, you know, Jimmy Dore, whenever anybody wants to go after Anna Kasparian, uh, it's like the first move. They, they say, aha, here is my here is my evidence against her. She's an imperialist shill, even though she's against all the wars. She's against U.S. sanctions on Syria. She never wanted the United States to be militarily involved there. But still, she's an imperialist shill. And the evidence that she's an imperialist shill is that she interviewed Madeleine Albright. And the way that they present it always makes it sound like this was some kind of love fest, uh, you know, that uh, that this, this is uh, that, uh, you know, that she was only pitching her softballs, you know, and all that. Uh, and and this started to bug me. I said, you know, this isn't that long. Go back and watch this interview. I mean, I I really can't imagine Anna, uh, you know, uh, doing you know doing that. But hey, whatever. I'll, I'll I'll give it a watch. And guys, this is ridiculous. Uh, let's 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 pull up the uh, the first clip to give you a sense of what actually happened in this interview. Currently, we are assisting the Saudis in the war in Yemen. And there is a famine. There is a complete blockade in terms of a humanitarian aid. And it's, it's interesting to see the U.S.'s involvement in that while, you know, the government simultaneously argues that it will fight other wars in the name of human rights, in the name of democracy. Why is it that we continue to be such close allies with Saudi Arabia, considering some of the heinous crimes they've committed abroad? Well, our long-term relationship has been with Saudi Arabia, starting by Franklin Roosevelt. And there really is a reason. Saudi Arabia is an important country. Um, and we do, in fact, have, as I said, have been carrying on a relationship with them for a long time. What is troubling, and I think it's something that we have to stop, is that the uh, Saudis are using weapons that they bought from us uh, to inflict harm in Yemen so that they are involved in some of the airstrikes. And the Yemeni situation is just horrendous in terms of the humanitarian problems. And the hard part is how do you separate the fact, uh, the murder of Khashoggi um, and whatever responsibility comes from the crown prince uh, from uh, our, our need really to have a relationship with Saudi Arabia for geostrategic reasons, but then them misusing what we sell them for terrible things. So I think it is a very hard situation to explain. So you say that Saudi Arabia is an incredibly important ally. Can you explain that in a little more detail? Because I think a lot of Americans don't really buy that. And I can understand why. So maybe this is a good opportunity to yeah. explain why they're such an important ally. Well, I actually would not call them an ally because we don't have an alliance with them. We have a working relationship with them in terms of some security issues in the Middle East. And the Middle East... Yeah, it's a very clear distinction. Um, and, a working um, security relationship, not an ally. Friends uh, that have a, a certain way of uh, dealing... Iran is a problem. There's no question in terms of in that competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we also have to make clear when we deal with the Saudis uh, that they cannot use our weapons for killing um, uh, the Yemenis or um, use um, or you know be involved in murdering somebody. And, and they that, are using those weapons to do just that. And we continue to sell our weapons, not only to Saudi Arabia, but to other countries. Yeah, it uh, goes on like that. Uh, so, uh, so she's she's pressing uh, the uh, she's pressing. We call them bad Saudis. You do not 
do not do that. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, she's uh, she's pressing uh, Madeleine Albright, asking her embarrassing questions about uh, the uh, the U.S. alliance uh, with the uh, the you know theocratic, quasi-fascist uh, you know kingdom of uh, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, in in the next um, you know in the next clip, uh, she uh, she brings up uh, you know a uh, she she brings up the flip flop. Uh, that Madeleine Albright and the rest of the liberal establishment uh, did on uh, on the uh, the whole the whole question of Russia uh, between uh, between 2012 and uh, and now. Let's just let's watch that one's very quick. I want to pivot onto the issue of Russia because that is, of course, a big topic of discussion at this conference for obvious reasons. But you know. In doing research for this interview, I came across a statement that you made back in 2012 in response to Mitt Romney. Now, at the time, Mitt Romney was running for president, and he referred to Russia as America's number one geopolitical foe. And your response was that he uh, had little understanding of what was actually going on in the 21st century. And then, uh, and then a couple minutes after that, uh, she, uh, she brings up uh, domestic U.S. politics you, you know, uh, this is, of course, an international conference, but uh, I do want to just ask you one question about American politics. So in America uh, right now, we're seeing this rise of young female politicians, which is really inspiring. And I think uh, that was long overdue. And my mind does wander back to 2016 when uh, you made a statement about women who did not want to support Hillary Clinton as president. Uh, you have apologized for that statement. I didn't say that. So if you if you if you're capable of of watching all of this and and thinking that this is uh you know this is some kind of like love fest or you know friendly interview I mean yeah she she does she she gives she gives Albright a chance to answer the questions uh she doesn't like interrupt her and start screaming at her she doesn't spit at her or or spill pig's blood on her not that I would have objected if she had done any of those things Albright would have all of that and much more coming to her uh, and and I would I would probably you know buy buy Anna a beer every time I saw her for the rest of my life if she had done that but uh, uh, but like this is the it's a very short interview and that very short interview includes uh, pressing Albright on uh, U.S. complicity in Saudi war crimes and includes uh, bringing up uh, and she starts laughing when she's saying it she can't contain herself uh, Albright's amazing you know flip flop on uh, on Russia and Putin uh, she brings up. You can tell also that Madeleine Albright is not used to getting any kind of pushback on any interview because her face throughout it is, is shocked as if somebody ha- has spilled pig's blood on her. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. She doesn't get this. Like, uh, like this is this is like this is not the way that establishment journalists uh, treat uh, treat Madeleine Albright. Uh, and yeah, she she brings up you know I mean like the uh, the. Uh, the women who don't support other women, you know, comment about, you know, female Bernie supporters, you know, from, from 2016, which pisses Albright off at the end. Uh, and, and the point of all of this is not that uh, necessarily, you know, that, that Anna is, you know, is right in every detail of every beef that, you know, that, that she has with, with anybody who, who brings this up. I mean, I, do think that you know that that she she has a point in uh, in these uh, in, you know in in these uh, this this back and forth you know that that I've uh, I've I've been looking at I mean I I, I think that she 
Uh, I think that some of the stuff that she's raised about some of these people seems legitimate. But the point is that if in response to that, you know, you keep said, oh, but she interviewed Madeline Albright, which is always it's not the only, but it's always the first response of all of these guys. You're being a fucking idiot. Don't do that. Don't be an idiot. If you want to have like comradely disagreements here on left media, great. Go for it. We believe in that here. Give them an argument. Uh, but like this sort of ridiculous smear tactic, like, oh my God, she's an imperialist shill. She interviewed Madeleine Albright once. You know, guys, you got to cut that out. It's bullshit. It's tedious bullshit. And that is what I have to say about that. Don't be an idiot. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we are we are for real going to go to the post game now. The uh, the link has uh, has already uh, been uh, been posted uh, for uh, for patrons. I uh, remember if you uh, are not a patron and you want to be one, that's patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. So I will uh, I will see all of our lovely, wonderful patrons uh, over there in about 30 seconds. Left is best. <laughs>